0: My intention was to use the Frank Dunn book called Know Your Bible. And what I wanted to do was take each book of the Bible and teach it in one lesson on a Sunday night. And that way, it would help you to understand that book. After the lesson, one or two lessons, you would leave thinking, I know what that book is about without having to go through an entire class on that book because that's very time consuming. So, I thought in a little more than a year, we could cover every book of the Bible. I decided that what I was going to do is start and do the book of Nehemiah. Now, I started getting carried away because the more I studied it, I thought, we might just have to make this our next, our next class study on the book of Nehemiah because it's about starting over. It's about building. In fact, it's about rebuilding. And I thought it deals a lot with what we are going through, and it's very applicable right now. It deals with leadership. It deals with the challenges of growing and building. It deals with opposition. And so, maybe we'll do that, and I might uh, make the Sunday morning class on Nehemiah and uh, go through this book. But this morning, what we're going to do is kind of an overview. It's going to be a, uh, a broad picture of the book of Nehemiah. Now, I think that it always helps when you're studying a book of the Bible if you can see where it fits in the scheme of time especially a book that's a historical book like Nehemiah. Now, a lot of people's knowledge of, especially the Old Testament, is not as great. And so, I want to begin and show you something about the chronology here. A lot of people don't realize that the Old Testament is not laid out chronologically. And so, this is a chronological chart of the Old Testament. If you notice this, you think about the books of the Old Testament. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you would think that is chronological. Of course, Genesis means the beginning. It is the first book. But if you notice below Genesis, we have Job. And that is because, chronologically speaking, the events of the book of Job, most scholars of the Bible believe that Genesis and Job were taking place at the same time chronologically. You notice that we've got Exodus and Leviticus. That's because these are things that are running simultaneous to one another. Numbers and Deuteronomy are the same. You'll notice that Judges and Ruth are the same. Then we've got 1 and 2 Chronicles. They overlap with 1 and 2 Samuel. You see 1 and 2 Chronicles down here. 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings because 1 and 2 Chronicles are largely retelling the things that are in Uh, 1st, 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. You'll notice across the top of the chart that we have the names of some of the prophets. People think that you go past 1st, 2nd Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, then you get Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then you start listing the prophets, but the prophets actually are taking place the same time as these other books. And so, these are the books of history, these are the prophets. And so, during the historical period of 1st and 2nd Samuel, Amos and Hosea were the prophets. And so, what they say is preaching that takes place in this time period. Then, and they were preaching to the north. Then you've got those preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah, Joel, Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. That is during the period of 1st Kings. And then 2nd Kings, Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah. You've got the captivity period, the 70 years that they are in Babylon, and the prophets during that time were Daniel and Ezekiel. They come out of the 70 years, and then you've got Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now you might recognize, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. And, historically speaking, Ezra and Nehemiah, although they are way early, in the Old Testament, it takes you through the end of the Old Testament. Nehemiah actually ends the Old Testament, and the prophets during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So these are the last prophets of the Old Testament. This is the last historical period of the Old Testament. And you'll see the book of Esther is running the same time period as the book of Ezra. And if that helps you to put things in perspective... I went online and uh, a site where you can make timelines and so I made this myself to help us understand the timeline of the book of Nehemiah. I know I'm pointing at it here, so hopefully the rest of you can uh, follow along with what I'm saying. Um, And if you want, if anybody wants these, uh, let me know. I'll send them to you, but to understand the timeline of the book of Nehemiah, if you pick up all the way over here at the left, Imagine if you could run back this direction. This is the United Kingdom. I started at the divided kingdom. Of course, the United Kingdom started with Saul, and then it was David, then it was Solomon. When Solomon died, his son, Rehoboam, took the throne, and the kingdom split. And so what you had then was the northern kingdom up top, the southern kingdom on the bottom. The northern kingdom in 722 B.C., because of their sin, God allowed them to go into Assyrian captivity, or He forced them to go into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom, because they weren't as wicked, they lasted about a hundred years longer. And then they went into Babylonian captivity, and it was in three different stages that Babylon came and took them and hauled them off. 607, 597, 586. Then you can see I've got in yellow the 70 years of captivity. This is when they are in Babylon. Underneath that, you can see I wrote Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Cyrus. The reason I did that is because the 70 years they were in captivity, it wasn't the same king. There were several kings, and that is because it started with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but then you've got the Medes and the Persians because they were overtaken. Babylon's overtaken by the Medes, and then the Persians. And so I didn't list all the kings, just the main ones. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus, there was a couple others in there, Darius. Now, notice under that I wrote Daniel, and that's because Daniel, you can see, lived a long time. Daniel started before the 70 years of captivity. He was born during that period, and Daniel actually lived beyond the 70 years of captivity. Daniel was an old man. When you think about Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel was an old man when he was in the lion's den. He was probably 90 years old when he's in the lion's den. We don't always think about that. You notice this, when you get to the period of Cyrus, King Cyrus, it was prophesied in in the year 538 BC, Cyrus decides he's going to release the Jews and let them go back home. Now, it was prophesied 150 years before that by Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44, that a king was going to be born, his name was Cyrus, and he was going to release the Jews. How about that? Not just that a king was going to to release the Jews, but that his name was going to be Cyrus. So, Cyrus comes along, and he releases the Jews, and he says, you can go back to your promised land. Now, He starts this. It actually takes place in three stages, and I label these in green. I've got number one, the temple, number two, the law, and number three, the wall. That's because when Cyrus first released the Jews, he allowed one of the Jewish princes, whose name was Zerubbabel, to go back to Jerusalem. And he took a group of people with him in 537, and they started rebuilding the temple. That's the first thing. And you can see I've got temple restored in 516. So it took them about 20 years to build the temple. Then secondly, I've got the law in 458 B.C. See, that's a long time. That's, you know, roughly 100 years. uh, Not quite, what, 80 years in between. So they build the temple. 80 years later, there's a second group that leaves Babylon to go back. And this is led by a man named Ezra. Ezra, when he gets back, he starts working on restoring the law of God. And then you can see from Ezra in 458 BC to 445, so roughly another 10-12 years, uh, a third man goes back to Jerusalem, and this is the man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is going to build the wall. And so, and you can see that uh, Esther, King, um, Queen Esther, she falls in this period too. So when I made the chart, this is really compact, and it's, it's not uh, a proportionate timeline. And so this is compact, and this is actually, should probably be like this, but I spread it out so that you can see what we're talking about here. But to understand Bible history, you've got the kingdom, it divides, The northern kingdom goes into Assyrian captivity and that's about all we hear about them. The southern kingdom goes into Babylonian captivity. After they come out of captivity, then you've got the three returns and that takes us to the end of the Old Testament. Now, Nehemiah building the wall carries us to the end. I put this uh, black line here to indicate the end and then I've got the silent 400 years. That's because after the Old Testament ends, For 400 years, we don't have any prophets, we don't have any prophecy. The next thing that we hear about is Matthew chapter 1, and the New Testament begins. Now, during the silent 400 years, I'll do a lesson or two about that sometime, or maybe we'll get Josh to. You've got some interesting history there. Sometimes you hear about uh, the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees. The Maccabees were a Jewish family. And it is during this period that there's some good, uh, there's some fighting, there's some history, some things that lead to the New Testament. It is apparently when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come into existence. So there's a lot of interesting history in the 400 years, but there's no prophets of God. There's no miracles, there's no prophecy, just a silent 400 years. But that gives you the timeline of Nehemiah. It's after all of the Old Testament. You get to the very end. The Jews come back and they are rebuilding the walls. Now this is important. They begin first with the temple. And then they have a long period, 20 years. And it staggers and it stalls and they don't get a lot done. And The enemies back in their homeland are abusing them and giving them grief. Ezra goes back for the law and uh, they're having a hard time getting this off the ground. and. Uh, We we can talk about this sometime, that Ezra goes back and some of the people had intermarried with the heathen and he, he says, you're in unscriptural marriages and he makes them separate and teaches us a good precedent for today. But we're going to begin with Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes back home and what he's going to find is Jerusalem is there, they've got the temple, but they've got no wall. How do you protect this city? Now. I want to begin here in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. I want to put this in perspective. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of king Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. This is Nehemiah talking. He says, Now I had never been sad in the presence of the king. This is not a good thing to come into the presence of the king and just be down. The king wanted everyone to be happy, to be a servant. And so when you come and you look doom and gloom in the presence of the king, you might be taking your life in your hands, especially with an evil king like Xerxes or Artaxerxes. So he says, I came into the presence of the king. I've never been sad in his presence. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? There is nothing but sorrow in your heart. So I became dreadfully afraid." What's up with that? Uh Uh-oh. I am sad in the presence of the king, and he's calling me on the carpet about this. And he said, verse 3, "...may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad, when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire?" So he said, I am very sad. I'm thinking about Jerusalem. If you go back to chapter 1, I didn't cover this, but he had inquired from some of the people that had been in Jerusalem working. He asked them about the situation. They told him, and in chapter 1 he weeps. He is just torn up. Jerusalem was the home of the Jewish people. He's sick to death over this. It's eating at him. We come into chapter 2. He goes into the presence of the king. He's still torn up about this. The king says, what's going on? And he says, I'm torn up about this. And so, verse 4 then King Artaxerxes says, What do you request? Now, this is interesting to me. He says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Think about this. The king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? He comes in carrying his cup. Now, the cupbearer didn't just carry his cup, he also tasted it. Why would you want someone to taste your drink if you're the king? Somebody might poison. How would you like that job? You're the poison tester. So if, uh, if it's bad, it's not a good job to have. So anyway, he tastes it. He gives it to the king, and the king is going to drink of it. He sees him. Obviously, he trusts Nehemiah. And he says, what's the matter? And he says, I'm torn up. And the king says, what can I do? What's your request? And he says, so I prayed the God of heaven. That's a strange time to stop and pray, isn't it? You reckon he got down on his knees and folded his hands and broke into prayer to God? How do you think this prayer went down? Probably a silent prayer. Probably had his eyes open. How long do you think this prayer lasted? Think he prayed for 10 or 15 minutes about this? I really like this passage because the king says, What's your request? And he says, Therefore I pray to God and answer the king. I've got the idea this was a fast prayer. Two, three, four, five seconds, ten seconds at the most. His eyes are open, and it was something like this. Nehemiah, what's your request? And he said, Dear Lord, give me wisdom in answering the king. Dear king, this is my answer. Isn't that a great example? To think about the fact that we can pray to God anytime with our eyes open, and that's a good thing. We can pray to God throughout the day, and that being the case, think how many times, in fact, it gives uh, uh, a different light to 1 Thessalonians five seventeen. pray without ceasing. I can be praying to God all the time. All right? He says, so I said to the king, uh, let's see, verse 5, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, Jerusalem, that I may rebuild it. And so what ends up happening is the king, the queen sitting next to him, says, What can we do? How long will your journey be? What can we do? And so the king ends up giving him uh, a letter, permission, money, help, assistance, everything. And he says, Go and do this. And so the first trip he goes just to assess the situation. So when you get to Nehemiah chapter chapter 2 and verse 13... Nehemiah goes to the city, and he says, And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well. This is him walking around Jerusalem on a beast of burden. I don't know what it is. Probably a donkey or a mule or something. And he's walking around on the rubble. Because when this temple is destroyed, it is nothing but a big pile of rocks. And so he's walking around thinking, I need to rebuild this wall And it's a mess. So, you think about the different gates to the city that used to be there. He says, I went out by night through the valley gate. And then I went to the serpent well. And then to the refuse gate. And I viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal under me to pass. You see what he's saying? I'm trying to go through these gates, and it is such a disastrous pile of rocks that my beast of burden, my donkey can't even get over this. That's what a mess this situation is. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lies in waste, and its gates are burned with fire? Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. Why are they a reproach? Think about what the nations round about, the heathens round about them. Here they are, their city is just surrounded in a big pile of burned rubble and everyone makes fun of them for it. These are supposed to be the people of God and yet they've just got this mess here. So he says to the people, I've done an assessment of the situation, let's build this wall. Think about the rocks just destroyed Jerusalem is a large city. How long is it going to take them to do this? What a massive job this is going to be to do this. Now look at chapter 6 and verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. This is amazing. I don't think we appreciate just how amazing this is. Do I have until 11? Is that right? Okay. I know I'm not going to get through this today, but I want to talk about how this was done. How did they accomplish this seemingly impossible task? A donkey couldn't even climb over this nasty pile of rubbish. And yet, in less than two days they repaired the wall. How in the world could they do this? I want to suggest to you there were basically three reasons. Number one was the Lord. Number two was the leader. And number three was their labor. They could not have done this without the providence of God, the Lord. And number two is the leader. Nehemiah is an amazing leader. And then number three is their labor. We learn some things about the providence of God in this book. We learn some things about leadership in this book a lot. And then we learn a lot of things about labor. The fourth thing that there's a great deal about is opposition. You see the opponents, the difficulties, the mockery in this book, and that's got to be a whole lesson in and of itself. That's why I was going to make this one lesson and as I went on I said, there's just too much here. so. I'm going to start and talk about the labor because I think that's going to affect all of us. I broke the labor into four parts and you know I like to either start with the same letter or make it rhyme or some preachers like to do that. Um, you, You probably have noticed Josh do that, but four things that I've noticed that made their labor successful. Number one is participation. Number two, I called it perspiration. Number three is cooperation. Then number four is going to be dedication. So I went with the Asian approach. So let's look at this. Number one is participation. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 6 says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. Now look, look what it says. For the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. I want you to notice it doesn't say they had a mind to plan. It doesn't say they had a mind to discuss it. They didn't have a mind to make promises. They didn't have a mind to criticize. They didn't have a mind to censor. They had a mind to work. Now notice chapter 3 and verse 12, we're going to learn something about these workers. It says, and next to him, this is picking up right in the middle of a thought, and next to him was Shalom, the son of Haloahesh leader of half the district of Jerusalem. Now listen to this part. This is them out working on the wall. It says, he and his daughters made repairs. Now, what do I glean from that? I see that we've got an entire family united working together. You've got this man, he's out working with his daughters. What can we pick up from that? We've got work to do. We've got building. We've got rebuilding to do. It's a family affair. We need to make sure we have our family engaged in this. And not only is it a family united in the work of the Lord, but we learn that there are women actively engaged in this work. And brethren, where would the church be today if it weren't for the work of godly women? I know I might not be a gospel preacher today had it not been for the influence of women in my life. I can remember As a kid, my mother always insisted that we were going to put church first. It came before all the secular activities. I think about Bible class teachers I had like uh, y'all wouldn't know her, but Miss Helen Richardson. I was in the second grade and she had us memorizing the books of the Old Testament forward and backwards we we had to say them. I remember them today because I learned them in the second grade. We studied the the journeys of Israel and the 40 days in the wilderness in second grade. I even think about kindergarten. Ms. Toothman used to, she taught us about Daniel in the lion's den. I remember those things. You don't realize, never underestimate the power of what's being taught to the little kids. And I think about my wife, how she's helped me through the years and prompted me and helped to tame my temper and uh, subdue me. The work of women. I learned something about that. Then you look down to verse 20, and you've got this. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabbi, the the new King James says, carefully repaired the other section, from the buttress of the door to the house of Eliashib the high priest. Now the new King James says, he carefully repaired this section. The King James says, he earnestly prepared this section. I learned something else. The word that's translated from the Hebrew here as earnestly is from a word that means burning. It's where we get the word zeal. What it means is he was working on his section of the wall with zeal. Whatever section of work you've got, you've got zeal. You've got to have zeal if you're going to make this work. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 where Paul said, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel. That is with every bit of my being I'm going to do this work. But, there's always exceptions. Because when you look at chapter 3 and verse 5, you see one man's working with his family, His daughters are out working. One man is working with zeal. He's working earnestly. But chapter 3 and verse 5 says, "...and next to them were the Tekoites. They repaired..." But listen to this, "...but their nobles did not put their shoulders into the work of the Lord." What does that mean when it says, "...the nobles did not put their shoulders into the work?" What, What would you interpret that to mean? This guy worked earnestly, but the nobles did not put their shoulder into the work. Okay. It's interesting. They're the nobles. They think they're somebody. They really didn't get into it. They really didn't lean in and push hard. And it, what it's saying is they were kind of lazy about this. In almost every group, you're going to have some people that are going to be lazy, and that hurts the work think about yourself, make sure you're not that person. We want to make sure that we are all working. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But you know, sometimes we don't work, we shirk. Sometimes we don't labor, we loiter. I want to make sure I don't loiter, I labor, that I don't shirk, I work. Now what causes this? What causes some people to shirk instead of work? What causes some people to loiter instead of labor? One major factor is indifference. That's it. Indifference. That is, we couldn't care less. I think we have a cream of the crop group here. I think we have already seen that we don't have a lot of indifference here. That makes me think we're going to grow and we're going to prosper because we've got people who want to work. A second contributing factor to God's people not working is sometimes people want to rest upon others. Now what do I mean by that? I want you to think about this. Two men go out fishing together and on the way they stop at the you know corner store, bait and tackle store, and the man who's driving He's driving his truck, and he's going to get gas. And so he starts pumping the gas, and his buddy jumps out and says, let me pay for this. We're taking your vehicle. I'm going to pay for this. So they go in, and they get the bait, and he says, here, let me give you my money to pay for my half of the bait. What's happening there? What they're saying is, I'm not going to let someone else carry my load. I'm going to make sure that I carry my weight. But sometimes when it comes to the work of the Lord, we don't want to worry about carrying our weight. Sometimes we want to rest upon others. I heard an old preacher tell a story, and he said back when he first started preaching, they traveled by train. And he said, whenever it was time for the train to start the journey, the conductor would come around, and he'd say, Tickets, please. I've never been in that situation. But he said they would come around, Tickets, please. And he said, imagine this. Imagine that you are on the trip, the conductor comes around, and he says, Ticket, please. And he comes to a man, And he says, Ticket, please. And the man says, I don't have a ticket. And he says, How is it you think you're going to make this journey? What if the man said this? What if he said, Weren't you going to make this trip whether I came or not? And he says, Well, of course. Well, then what difference does it make whether I ride with you? You're going to make the trip anyway. That is, I'm going to come along for the ride, but I'm not going to contribute anything for it. You know, there used to be a a word for people like that. They called him a hobo, right? That's probably politically incorrect today. I don't know, but they called him a hobo. What was that, what's that man trying to do? He's trying to rest on others. And I think each one of us needs to stop and ask ourselves, what contribution am I making to the church here? You can make a contribution just with your presence. That is, I want to be here because I want to help this church grow. What contribution are you making? with your finances. Especially in the beginning, we don't have a lot of extra set aside. We have very, very little. And so, finances matter. What contribution are you making to the work? What contribution are you making to encourage other people? What contribution are you making in teaching and teaching non-Christians? What contribution are you making in involvement? Than the first thing that I notice about their labor is that they had participation. If you notice verse 21, it says, Nehemiah says, "...so we labored." What does that mean? We? What's that? Okay. Okay. Five minutes. Um, "...so we labored." If there's one thing that the Bible attests to, it is the power of unity. Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 9 says, "...two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor." What is that saying? The more people that work together, the stronger they're going to be. You know, in Genesis chapter 11, you've got the Tower of, of Babel. I always remember that because I think about 11 is two ones and it looks like two towers. You've got the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. It's interesting that these people had come together for an evil purpose. But the Bible says, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And verse 6, Genesis eleven six, 6, the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. That is, they are unified, they have one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. The Lord said, when people are unified and they're working together, there is nothing that can hold them back and stop them. They were doing evil, and nothing could hold them back. Imagine people who are doing good. That's the first thing we see is participation. Here's the second thing, perspiration. I thought, that's kind of a strange point to put in in your sermon, isn't it? Perspiration, I mean, I have sweat as one of my my points here. But the point that I'm making, again, Nehemiah 4.21, so we labored. I use the word perspiration because I want you to get in your mind hard work. If you think about them, they're doing physical labor. Imagine spending the day moving massive piles of rubble and mixing and carrying mortar and maneuvering heavy stones into place. This is the kind of work that would bring sweat to the brow and pain to the back. It's hard work. You know, in Luke 13:24, Jesus said this, Strive that you enter into the straight gate. For many, I say, will seek to enter in and they will not be able." When Jesus said strive to enter the straight gate, the Greek word there is agonizomai. Strive. Agonizomai. When you hear someone say agonizomai, what, does that sound similar to any English word? Agony. Agony. Agonize. It's where we get the English word agonize. It means to do something with great difficulty it means to struggle it's where we get the word agonize agonize that you enter in to the straight gate what does this mean so we labored perspiration difficult work second peter 2:10 therefore brethren be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure for if you do these things you will never stumble that is if you're going to go to heaven it's going to take some perspiration It's going to take some labor in the Lord's kingdom. And if you're not doing that, you're not going. Why do I say that? Listen again. Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. You've been called to be a Christian. You've become a part of the elect by obeying the gospel. If you want it to be sure that you're going to go to heaven, be more diligent, agonize, work in the Lord's kingdom. Brethren, imagine the good we could do if every Christian worked like that. If every Christian would put forth that kind of exertion, I suspect we could carry out the command to preach the gospel to the whole world in a short amount of time. Now notice again, especially significant, the text says, they labored, not that they prepared to labor. We do need to prepare. But preparation is not a substitute for performance. You know, we attend training classes, but we still have to go out and teach. We still have to do it. Notice the text says they labored, not that they talked about it. Sometimes there's a lot more said than there is done. It would be interesting to compare the number of hours spent talking about the Lord's work as compared to the number of hours doing the Lord's work. Sometimes people can talk a great talk, but when it comes to doing, not a whole lot is done. An indifferent church member said to Henry Ward Beecher, he had presented a good idea about human behavior, and this indifferent church member said, I take my hat off to that idea. Mr. Beecher said, how about taking your coat off and going to work for it? You know, it's interesting when you look at the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the Lord commended the faithful servant because He said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant well done, not well said. Here's a poem. It's one of my favorites. You might have heard me share it before. I heard it years ago and I just liked it. Two brothers once lived down this way. One was named Do, and the other named Say. If streets were dirty, or taxes were high, or schools were crowded, Say would cry, My what a town! But Brother Do would set to work to make things new. And while Do worked, Say would cry, He does it wrong, I know that I could do it right. So all the day was heard the clank of Brother Say. But this one fact from none was hid, Say always talked and Do always did." Isn't that a good poem? Some people are big talkers, And some people criticize those who do, but they don't do. We need to be sure that we are doing the work and not just talking about the work. All right, we've got the first two points, and the next time I get to teach, I will cover the last two points. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. We're dismissed.